Well, uh, it, <laughs> for those who are guests, welcome. <laughs> My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team here, to, and uh, we, we want to spend some time in Scripture today. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture in the book of Luke, okay? Luke chapter 14. I'd invite you to grab a Bible and to turn to Luke 14. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the pew rack right in front of you. And uh, if you don't own one, take it home as our gift to you, please, and you'll find the page numbers for those Bibles uh, for Luke 14 uh, on the screen behind me. Before we get to that, I want to, um, I've learned some things this week that I think you'll find interesting and helpful, and that is, um, you may be familiar with an American icon, an artist by the name of Norman Rockwell. Rockwell uh, used to have um, lots of sketches or illustrations that would grace the covers of the Saturday Evening Post on a regular basis. And kind of this iconic American look. You can see some of them on the screen. You've got the picture of Thanksgiving, not picture, the, the sketch of Thanksgiving on the right-hand side. One of my favorite ones has always been the one where the kids go skinny dipping and they get caught and they're racing out with their clothes. Uh, you've got dad not going to church on the Sunday morning. What's interesting to me is the way in which the son is looking at the dad. Excuse me, the girls are not. And then the one in the middle at the top is, uh, that's called The Runaway, it's from 1958. And uh, you, you've got the story immediately uh, of the, the policeman who finds the little boy running away from home and takes him out for lunch, and it's a great story in and of itself. What I didn't know until just this week, as I was thinking, uh, you'll see where this is going in a moment, was that there are um, photographs behind many of those sketches in that Rockwell would say, I want this sketch to look like this, and then he would go out and he would make, and there's a book that's come out now with these photographs that he would create in order to use as models for his sketches. And so you can see there some of the models that, and how he would direct the photography session. So you think he's really an artist in photography, let alone his ability to paint. There's that same police and little boy, the runaway, uh, in the center there, you can see how that works, where you, you've got that, the police. And th these were real people, and he'd go out and photograph them, pose them, and then paint them. The one on the right-hand side with uh, the little kids, uh, this is at the, towards the end of the 50s, into the 1960s, and it was, it was titled something, in fact, of New Neighbors Moving in the Neighborhood. And you see this, you know, the, the, just the intensity of the struggle. But what's interesting to me was the photographs that he would pose to get ready for those sketches. One of his uh, more familiar things was he would often draw sketches of himself, self-portraits. This one you're about to see is from 1938 when he couldn't figure out what to put on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post one week. Isn't that clever? All right, he just, I don't know what to put on there, so I'll put a picture, uh, I'll draw a painting of me struggling to figure out what I should put on there. 22 years later, in 1960, this is the portrait that came out on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. It's called the Triple Self Portrait. And it's fascinating to me. You've got three different versions of Norman Rockwell, uh, one of him looking in the mirror, one that he's actually painting, and one of him doing the painting, but you realize that really there's the fourth person who's actually doing the painting. Does that make sense? And these different layers that are in that. Well, this is what was new to me this week was that there were actually photographs in which he staged this. 
and you end up with about five or six different layers. For example, take a look at this next slide. And there is the beginning of some sketches that he had in mind for this, but he started with him, he was looking in a mirror and see the spindles on this, what would be a balcony or something above him in the middle that you can see reflection from the mirror. Go to the next slide, please, guys, and you'll see that there's the, see how complicated this gets? He's looking, got a photograph that somehow, other, I don't know how it all works. It gets to the point where I'm, I lose track of how many Norman Rockwells I'm looking at and how deep the layers go in order for him to produce that triple self-portrait. Now, I brought all that to your attention today because as I was working with the passage of Scripture we're about to read today, I need to tell you, you've got to take that same look. There, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story about a banquet, Jesus at a banquet, where while he's at the banquet, he tells about how to, how to, he tells a parable about a banquet and then he tells a parable about God's banquet and it's him telling it, so it's him doing the inviting and, it's, and it's, it's like very confusing if you just, unless you take a look and say, it's kind of like that triple self-portrait where there are all these layers, so it's a story about a banquet while Jesus is telling a story about a banquet while he's at a banquet. Confused? I figured as much, okay. That's why I want to point it out to you. It gets rather confusing. We'll see if we can unpack it. Luke chapter 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat, so he is at a place where he's eating with people. When Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling in his body. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? That's because it was customary, religious rules, you should do no work on the Sabbath. In Jewish customs, that's the Saturday. You do no work, it's still, if you go to Israel today, things shut down at sundown on Friday night, and they don't open again till the sun, comes, and the sun goes down on Saturday night. And when we say shut down, we mean it shuts down. All right, so they still abide by that in Israel today. And he said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked him, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. So you're working on the Sabbath. He's saying, I'm pushing back against your religious rules. When he noticed how the guests picked the place of, places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So he's telling a parable about a banquet now while he's at a banquet. You catch this? These layers. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to your friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So now he's given some rules, if you will, and some this parable. Now he's going to turn to the host. So we've got a banquet where he's at, and he's told a story how to handle yourself at a banquet. Now he's going to talk to the host about how to do the banquet. It's getting multi-layered. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be rewarded. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, they will, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And he goes on now with another story about another banquet. 
So now we're at banquet number four, okay, if you're counting. When Jesus, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything now is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, well, I just got married, so, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. And the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. In other words, go grab people close by. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and the country lanes, go further afield, if you will, and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, as we look at this scripture today and the um, multiple layers of all the different banquets, if you will, we're doing it in the context of the sermon series that we started last week talking about eating with sinners. If you look at the scriptures, you have story after story, um, depiction after depiction of where Jesus would go to people's homes or would, would eat with people. He kind of ate his way across the geography of Israel, or, or as I said last week, he ate his way into the lives of dozens, hundreds of people throughout his ministry. And if we're to follow him, we're supposed to do the same thing. We're supposed to care for people around us and intentionally work our way into their lives, if you will, in a way that's right. And Jesus ate with all kinds of people from low life to high life, I mean, drunkards and prostitutes. And last week we looked at a guy who was an extortionist, a traitor to the Jewish faith. And then you had people of high society like who he's visiting with here, religious people who, and frankly, even higher than that, who, religious bigots, rich and wealthy and poor and the blind, he ate with them all. And if we're going to do that, then we have to do the same. If we're going to follow him, we have to do the same thing. But the awkwardness of it all is that Jesus said, I'm meeting with sinners, and we do then to do what he did. We have to identify some people as sinners, and that feels really judgmental on our part. Not so bad, though, if we realize that what Scripture says that all of us are sinners. So if I invite you to lunch this week, sinner, Come and have lunch with another sinner, okay? That's really the perspective of what we're, we're asking you to think about in the days ahead, about those around you and how can they learn of the story of Jesus like you know it. Aware, very much so, of the, of the issue of judging. And so with that in mind, what can we learn about this story or these series of stories that we have here in just these few verses? Well, at first glance, Jesus is obviously giving us some rules of etiquette. You know, it's, a, it's the Emily Post, if you will, of his, for his listeners of ancient Israel about how he views that people should respond to one another and how they should, you know, how you should follow some rules and, you know, first is last and last is first and all that sort of stuff. And I've got to tell you, these days, I don't know exactly how to handle these sort of situations anymore. What with social media, I, I feel a little bit awkward at times because Les and I recently got an invitation to a wedding on Facebook. And I don't know how many people got invited. 
And there was no way to RSVP. And I was used to getting, you know, an invitation in the mail to a wedding and to a banquet. And you have an RSVP and you say yes or no. But when it comes to you on Facebook, I don't know what to do with that. If you've got an answer to that, then you should be up here preaching right now because I don't know that any of us... My point is, he's giving some rules of etiquette and I don't know where the rules of etiquette and Emily Post is these days with Facebook. But Jesus is saying, it's all about humility. The first should be last and the last should be first. Don't take the place of honor at the banquet. Sit toward the back. Don't jump the buffet line. Isn't that what it is? And at first glance, it's pretty easy till as I was thinking about this this week, I've got some dilemmas. For example, over the 20 or so years that Leslie and I have been here, uh, as a church, we've done events where we've taken swaths of people to events. You know, ladies will go to a women's event. The men, when Promise Keepers was very prominent, we would take 45, 65 guys to Promise Keepers. We take the teenagers to Christian concerts. And we have, we've, had, we've developed a little system that has worked well for us until I read this scripture this week and began thinking about it. Namely, we will, we'll, we'll, we'll get on eight by 11 sheets of say bright orange neon color and we'll, we'll photocopy that often says reserved for First Christian Church. And we'll send two or three people ahead of time and they'll lay all those pieces of paper out on that right up toward the front or wherever we decide that we should all sit as a group. And I'm thinking, I don't know if we can do that anymore. The first will be last and the last will be first. I mean, now, yeah, admittedly, we're kind of taking care of our people, but is that what Jesus would do? In light of, what does it say? When someone invites you to a wedding feast or to, shall we say, a concert, don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. Ooh, I don't like it at all. Kind of cuts a little too close to home for the way in which we've done things in the past. Or here's another way that maybe comes a little closer to the, to the house for you. When our, up until when our kids went off to college, and even once they were in college, uh, Les and I would often take them away to North Carolina to the beach for a summer vacation. We did it year after year for many years. We had this kind of, I guess you could say it's a resort, a series of four or five buildings, all condominiums, and they're three stories tall, and they make this big U shape, and then you're right at the beach there, and in the inside of the U, there, there was a series of pools, and it was a lovely setting, and we would go there and have a wonderful time, and the first day we got there, we learned there was a routine that you had to go through, namely that... We would go out to the beach and you want to come back to the pool and kind of lay down and get one of those shades lounges. We learned there were more people than there were shades lounges. And so we discovered that if you wanted to get a shades lounge, somebody had to be up at 6 or 6.30 in the morning and you go out and you take a beach towel and you put it on that chaise lounge and that chaise lounge is yours for the rest of the day. And so... Leslie or I would get up early in the morning. We'd go lay our chaise lounge there. I mean, the towel out there on, the la- on, that, on that, you know, lay down thing. And we'd take the kids to the beach. We'd mess around the beach. And then at probably about 10, 30, 11 o'clock, we'd come back and want to lay down on one of those lay flat things. And there it would be. Our towel would be there. And it was kind of the social contract of the condominium. That's what everybody did. And if you didn't get up early enough, so sad for you. And it occurs to me as I was reading this, I don't know if I could do that anymore. Is that the right thing to do, do you think? 
I don't know the answer to that because I want to take care of my family, right? I want to do what's right for my family, but if, it's, if I'm teaching my kids to be selfish, that's not a good thing, is it? Hmm, I'll let you figure that one out over lunch. What would you do if that was your family? What should the church do when concerts come up in the future? Jesus presents us with these rules of how to be humble with one another. And then he launches into these parables, and particularly this parable about the great, excuse me, the great banquet, where he's, if you will, telling us that God invites all kinds of people into his heaven. Now I say that with some caution because preachers for generations have been very careless with the way in which we have handled parables. We've put a lot of allegory in that this person represents that person and that person represents that kind of person and we've kind of interpreted the parables to ad infinitum and yet when Jesus gave his parables and he did dozens of them, there was only one parable that he actually ever interpreted. The rest, he would just let the story stand on its own merit and then he would say, he who has ears to hear, listen. Figure it out. I think you're smart enough, he was saying, for you to figure out what's going on in my story. And so I would ask you, what is God saying in the story about the guy who says, I got a banquet and all the excuses that come along? What's, what's Jesus saying there? Well, obviously... Jesus is saying that God, as the banquet giver, is calling all kinds of people to experience divine pleasure, a delightful banquet, supernatural grace, and gracious hosting. And there's all kinds of people invited, including those who are close, including those who are low in the culture, low in the society. They are all invited to come and experience God. There's this gracious host saying, will you come? I've experienced some gracious hosting during my time. Many of you know that Leslie and I spent five years traveling as musicians, and Leslie continued on after that, after I stepped into pastoral ministry. Generally, the rule of thumb was that we would do six to nine, 11 months overseas each year in Europe or Eastern Europe and, and Africa. And then we would come back stateside and would spend uh, three to six months kind of itinerating in the US, raising funds as the group, as a, as a musical group, to support that ministry when we were overseas. And so in 1978, this is before Leslie and I were married, or before we'd even met for that matter, I was a 20-year-old keyboard player back in the U.S. and Canada after having been overseas for um, a number of months. Okay, I was overseas for about nine months. We came back stateside. And the goal was to do a tour of the northeastern part of the U.S. as well as go up into Canada. We went to uh, up in Canada, we went to Quebec, and Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. And the goal was go visit churches or visit, we sang in dozens, hundreds of civic auditoriums and things like that. But when we were in the U.S. and Canada, for the most part, we usually stayed in people's homes because that saved money because we were going to be overseas. And so night after night, you'd meet a new host family and spend the night with them. And it was a wonderful experience. There was some kind of dodgy situations as well. You'd meet family and go, oh, I don't know if I want to go to their house. And you got to their house, I don't want to be here, that sort of stuff. But one night, this is oh, somewhere outside of Toronto. And I don't recall the, the family's, the, their surname or anything, but uh, a single guy, 20 years old, another guy, uh, Ted from Texas, uh, one of the vocalists, we were invited to stay at this house of this couple who were in their 
late 50s, early 60s, obviously empty nesters. We met them after the concert. It's probably 11 o'clock at night. We've torn down all the equipment. It's back on the, on the bus or the truck. And um, we're ready to go to their house, spend the night, be back on the bus at 8 o'clock the next morning, or something to that effect anyway. And so we get to the house, and the lady says, we live on a lake, and if you'd like to go for a walk around the lake tonight, later tonight, it's really a wonderful setting. It was late summer, early fall, and uh, you'll have a great time. And so we had something to eat at the house, and they said, we're headed off to bed. And Ted and I said, yeah, we'll take a walk, and then we'll go to our rooms. And so we'd seen the rooms, and we went out, we took the walk, got back to the house, the, family, the couple were in bed, and we came in, locked the door, turned the lights out, went up to the room. Now, my suitcase was sitting there, and it was a lovely room. It was obviously at some point had been the room of their daughter, now obviously grown, and um, it was a little bit frilly, if you will, for a 20-year-old single guy, but it was only one night, and I thought, I can sleep here, no problem whatsoever. So I'm in there. It's a lovely, I mean, the house was, you could tell the kids had left, and they'd done the house over. You know what I mean? You ever seen that? And the floor was this pristine hardwood floor, this single bed in the room up against the wall and with a sort of frilly, lacy, blue, light blue bedspread on it. And at the end of the bed, down by the foot of the bed, was a table with a big glass lamp like this at the end of the bed. And I'm thinking, I don't want to knock the lamp over while I'm sleeping if my feet get too far, you know, strange room and that sort of stuff. So then above the lamp and all the way about six foot along the end the, the bed was a, a shelf. And the lady had obviously been into collecting little figurines. You know, the, we, those Fots, what are they called? Sports things or whatever, the, the Swiss thing? Sfusky? You can tell I collect them a lot, can't you? <laughs> but, you know, stuff like that and little deers, porcelain deers were this big and puppies and... Years of collection all on that shelf right there, right above the length of the bed. And so I'm ready for bed, and Ted and I have said goodnight. The other the couple, we hadn't seen them when we got back. I turned out the light, and the lamp didn't go off. You know, the, the overhead light went out, but not the lamp. And so I've got to get the lamp off, not mess with this big glass lamp. And I could not get it to turn off. There was no, I couldn't find a switch, so I'm a bright fellow. I thought, I'll just slowly and gently move the bed away from the wall, and I'll pl unplug this big glass lamp. You know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> Do you already know the end of the story? Sort of, right? So I moved the bed away from the wall, and now it's not in this perpendicular thing where probably a foot or so at the end. It's, and I've just got to reach in there, and unplugged the lamp, and I did that. The room went dark, everything was gonna be fine until I stood up. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and you know what happened, right? You know where this is going? That shelf of her 25, 35 years of collections was on the wall with a screw at either end. And I happened to knock the one end of it by the lamp and it came loose of the screw while the other screw stayed intact. So what do you think the shelf did? It went from being horizontal to that. 
immediately. And of course, there was no bed for it all to land on. I had moved the bed away from the wall and it all landed down on the hardwood floor, about 30 or so of these little figurines. Not one of them was unbroken. It was a lovely pile of them down there. <laughs> Ted came running in from the other room. He thought I'd fallen out the window. It was so loud. I said, I wish I'd fallen out the window. I want to be dead right now. I don't remember sleeping much that night. And the next morning, I went down to breakfast. I said, did you hear a loud noise overnight in the middle of the night? And the lady said, yes. And she had this little <clears throat> type of approach. She says, I told Phil. Phil, don't put the vacuum cleaner in the closet. He'll open up the closet, he'll hang up his coat, and the vacuum cleaner will fall down on him and it'll be very embarrassing for me, she says. I said, Phil, I don't even know if there was a vacuum cleaner in the closet. I said, I've got really bad news. Really bad news. You heard the noise. It wasn't the vacuum cleaner falling over. You know that little shelf that you have? Where she says, yes, I said, it came off the wall and it's all broken. And I remember going, and I expected to get an earful. And she went, it's only a collection. Only a collection? God, it'll be all right one of the most gracious moments I've ever experienced. It's only a collection. It's only something I've been working on for years, and yet it's all right. Do you know what? You are the collection of God, and a lot of, it's, a lot of God's collection is broken. But in great grace, God says, I'm interested in people, and I'm inviting you. Broken and messed up that you are from your own mistakes, I'm invited in this, I'm interested in this collection. Friends, God is interested in people. He's so interested in people that we read in Luke chapter 19 that that's the reason why Jesus came. Jesus, when he was talking about why he came, he said that Jesus, he said the Son of Man, speaking of himself, came to seek and to save the lost. And we, if we say that we were part of the collection that got ruined, nonetheless, God has saved us. God has forgiven us our sins through the coming of Jesus Christ, through this intentional act of God of coming. And now we follow him, then we've got to say, we care about the things of God, but we can't say we care about the things of God unless we care about the things that God cares about. And God cares about people, and we should too, right? Some people say no to the things of God. I mean, you look in this story, and you got all kinds of reasons why people say, I'm not interested. Verse 18, one said, I just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. I, my job gets in the way of me being related to, in any way to God. I mean, that's an excuse that some people might give, right? That's what Jesus says. He says it's an excuse that people give. Or other people say, I've got, I've got five oxen. I've got some big toys that I want to play with. My hobbies, my lifestyle, my, my, my toys, the things I do i got a lifestyle that God wouldn't accept. And if I was to come to God, I'd have to clean up my lifestyle. Well, maybe, yeah, but it's not an excuse to turn away from God. For others, they say, I just got married. Or, you know, I, my, my family, my family, we, we just don't do things the way you religious people do. 
Uh, our family's history is such that it, people tell me sometimes, we're just not into organized religion. And I was always want to go, I never have said it yet. Well, we can get you some disorganized religion if you'd like. <laughs> we can do either kind. We can do organized religion or disorganized. What do you want? We'll provide it for you either way as long as you come to know Jesus Christ. The problem is that regardless of the excuse, and there could, they could go on from there, is that when people say no to the invitation of God, friends, there are some very real consequences. Because when we say no to the things of God, we're saying no to what's our two possibilities in eternity. Scripture's plain. You're going to heaven or you're going to hell. Everybody spends eternity somewhere, either heaven or in hell. Those of us who follow Jesus Christ are given the responsibility to warn people who are headed to hell and say, hey, we could help you out, not through what we've done, but through this gracious host inviting. We read in the book of Jude that those of us who follow Christ have to be merciful to those who doubt. There are people who doubt. I have some questions. As I said, I don't know what to do about the towels on the chaise lounges. I don't know what to do about that yet. I'm still trying to figure that out. But in the midst of that, we are to save others by snatching them from the fire. We're told to snatch people from the fires of hell to bring them into a relationship with God and Jesus Christ. It's either heaven or hell. I need to tell you with some integrity that there are some theologians who offer some other alternatives besides heaven or hell. And if I was just to say it's cut and dried, heaven or hell, without acknowledging there are some who would disagree with me, would not be right. There's a theology called nihilism. Nihilism states that there's a heaven or a hell, but hell really exists that you, if you die and you know Christ, you go to heaven. If you die and you don't know Jesus Christ, then you are literally annihilated. That in the long run, that soul dies and the eternal torment doesn't really happen. And there are some very prominent theologians and important theologians in the history of the church, capital C, who would hold to that. So I need to tell you of that in some honesty. But, but I'd like to say this. Regardless if nihilism was to come into play and be appropriate, I'd still much rather somebody, rather than someone just dying off and being dead, I'd rather them experience the banquet, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Seems to me the most reasonable approach. See, other people may have excuses why they don't want to have a discussion about the things of faith and the things of Jesus Christ, but their excuses do that, 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 those excuses don't negate our responsibility to tell them of the good news of Jesus Christ. We are to invite others to the banquet. We are the servants, if you will, going out into the towns, into the streets, into the country lanes, saying to all who are blind, poor, lame, those of you who need, will you come in? I understand that's really hard. It's really hard. There are some that are real, it's real easy to sit down and have a conversation with them. You say some in natural relationships as part of our lives. You know, we say, come and be part of the life of First Christian Church and learn about Jesus Christ. Who are we going to invite? Well, three sets of people, those who are naturally close to us, friends, family. Have you ever thought of sitting down and saying, hey, can we go have, can we go have a, a coffee together? Can we sit down at Paul's diner and say, hey, can I tell you about the things of Jesus Christ? Or can I at least ask you the question if you're interested in the things of faith? Have you had a conversation like that with your family, with your friends? Those are in your natural relationships. There are those then who are, um, it's not, there are those who are in a second set, if you will, 
They're folk like you, but they don't yet know you. Uh, people at the gym that you see each day, but you don't know their name, or a neighbor that lives three blocks down, and yet you don't know who they are. But for the most part, they're like you. And then the third set is more difficult to reach into. And those who are people who are, if you will, different than you because of social, economic, or cultural barriers. Those are cross-cultural relationships. And here at First Christian Church, as a result of this series, we're asking you to really think about what are you doing with the first two sets? As a congregation, we are intentionally working with all three sets. Our event yesterday, we had lots of people in here who don't look like First Christian Church folk per se. I say that with some trepidation, really. But they're probably socially or economically not exactly where all of you are today. But we're working really hard. Pastor BJ is really leading us powerfully and effectively into that setting. But I want to ask you, how are you doing with those who are naturally like you and that you should be talking to? You know why I'm asking that? Why I'm pushing you on that today, friends, is because go back and look again at verse 23. The master says to his servant, go out into the roads and country lanes, compel them, make them come in so that my house will be full. Make them come in. The Greek there um, has some pretty strong and powerful language behind it. It means really to threaten them and entreat them. If you know King James, it means, it's, the word there is constrain. And we don't really like that because we get, feel like constrain. You're going to grab their arms or you know, grab them in a headlock. You're going to know about Jesus or else I'm going to pound your head or we're going to get you in front of the preacher and he's going to pound you with his Bible. No, Jesus isn't saying it like that. I mean, we, we see this in, the, in, our, in, our, in our world today. We've got this situation going on in Iraq right now where people are being compelled to turn away from their faith and become Muslims, give up your Christian faith, give up whatever faith you have, and proclaim that Muhammad is the true prophet of God or beheaded. You've seen that this week, right? And the guys are beheaded anyway. Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying, take on, those of you who have the responsibility to go out and invite people, take on the heart plea to the extent where you, it becomes that you understand how important it is that people come to the great banquet because they're either headed to heaven or they're headed to hell. And we are encouraged to do that. So that's why we're doing this series. To cause you to give some thought to the people around you who don't know Jesus Christ. So I've got some action points for you today in this regard. Here they are. I want you to think of to this week someone that you know or someone that you're aware of who needs to know Jesus Christ. And would it be feasible that you could in the next few weeks sit down and have them for dinner or take them out for coffee? Can you commit to put that on your calendar? We're going to give you tools in the coming weeks about how to do that. So today, I'm not asking you to, to go out and visit with them today, per se, unless you feel comfortable, but we're going to give you more tools in the coming weeks to figure out how to follow that conversation. But who is it? When are you going to put it on your calendar now? And when are you going to start praying for them? And then, when are you going to invite them? We've got a big event scheduled September 6th and 7th, the weekend after Labor Day, five worship services that day. Notice them. Different time than the service you're in right now, Okay. And the goal is to invite people to come and hear the story of Jesus Christ, to hear the story of the gracious host who says, 
despite how badly you messed up the collection, you're still invited. Let's do this. Let's step into communion together. And if you're serving communion, go and prepare for that. And as we do this, be mindful of, we've heard Jesus tell the story about a banquet and a series of banquets while he's at a banquet. And if you think about it, when you think of Jesus eating with sinners, isn't that what happens at communion? Jesus ate with his disciples, folk like you and me. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus took the bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me, eat. And then after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood that I've got a new way in which you can relate to me, relate to God through me. And so when you get the cup, drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul the apostle, as he's talking about this scene, about this meal, he says, Whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Today, as we eat and drink as sinners at dinner, if you will, with Jesus, we're proclaiming that Jesus died for us and we are taking on ourselves the responsibility to tell others of that. Let's pray together. Father, we are... We thank you for sending Jesus Christ. He came to seek and to save the lost and for some strange reason that only you have figured out, we get to be part of the ones who were lost but are now forgiven. But there are still others, Lord, who are yet lost and aren't forgiven and it feels judgmental on our part to acknowledge that, but it's, on the other hand, it's very biblical and we've got to figure out how to walk it out and get them from being lost to being forgiven. And the language can be troublesome for us, but... We get it, God. We understand it because we have this relationship with you through Jesus Christ, which comes to us as a result of his death. And so as we eat and drink, as we eat with sinners yet again today, sinners who are forgiven, remind us of his great work in our lives. Forgive us of our sins, we pray. Bring to mind the people that we should begin to start praying for and thinking about who we're gonna talk to about you. Teach us to pray, Lord, as he did, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation.